0: Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we talk about some sad news coming out of the Hong Kong film industry. And for our film this week, Godzilla vs. Kong. East Green, West
1: Green. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where a films were food, They'd be full of it. Welcome to East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about a film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, coming to you from sunny South Florida. And joining us from his home in a kaiju-ravaged Hong Kong is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey
0: there, Paul. How's it going? How are you doing, sir? Uh, Very busy, actually. So the Hong Kong Film Film Festival started on April 1st. So, yeah, the first couple of days have been like you know, one film after another. And this year there's also the online component. So I'm also trying to catch those films and as well as the screening. So yeah, and, and of course I'm trying to work as well. So it's been it's been pretty uh, hectic the, this whole Easter weekend. How about you, Paul?
1: Okay, so how's your mix? I mean, are you doing more online or more in cinema or
0: do you have pretty equal mix? Well, the thing with the cinema uh, component is that they, Because of the government measures, they limited seating to 50% when they started selling tickets. So uh, a lot of the shows were sold out pretty instantly. Um, for example, the, they, they screened four Wong Kar Wai films, the new remasters, and those were all snapped up within minutes even though that they, they added screenings and they added some more seats because the government um, actually eased some of the restrictions for cinemas and they opened it up to 75%. But yeah, those were snapped up pretty quickly. So I was only able to get about 12 or 13 physical films, like tickets like this. Um, also, yeah, the only, the other film that really snapped up quickly were the Stan, Stanley Kwan films because he's the filmmaker in focus and they're showing a lot of his old films and a lot of them only had one screening and they're not in the huge venues. They're in, like, uh, Tycoon, which has has 200 seats. So uh, 50%, that only means 100 seats were available, and they were snapped up quite quickly as well. So, yeah, I was only able to get about 12 to 13 um, physical screenings, and uh, so uh yeah i I kind of went half half online actually more no, more online than than physical, but yet of course they put then they put the biggest films, the most attractive films on at uh, the cinema component so um i I wasn't able to get really fit in as many as i could and the the thing is this year uh because of the cancelled festival last year they there are some films that they really really still want to show, so this year is um, the mix of new films and old films is a bit uneven is that, in fact, I think a, a good at least 30% of the films are from last year's program, and some of them i already seen, some of them I wasn't really too interested in, because um, the Hong Kong Film Festival was programming sort of lean towards um, avant-garde or a bit art filmy when when it comes to uh, Western films, so European films and, and maybe South American films. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a bit difficult to really watch films that really get you excited about the new stuff um but nevertheless i i managed, I, I i scheduled about 40 films in total so it's yeah it's and about i think about 25 or so they're online and, but then none of them are really the big sort of attractive stuff, you know, like the new local films I'm going to be watching today. I'm going to watch the two new local films they are playing at the festival. Um, Time, it, it's a film starring Patrick Say and Feng Bobo, which you're like, wait a minute, it's 2021, right? <laughs> Why is it this cast? Uh, and then uh, the the local premiere of Drifting, which is the new film by Jun Lee, the director of Tracy. Um, so I'm excited about those two. But otherwise, most of the films I'm watching are kind of either from the last last year's festival or a bit old or there the retrospective stuff not many exciting new films that i really want to catch this year
1: interesting i've been fortunate in that i got to see a couple of films of late because of the asian pop-up cinema season 12 where they were screening uh let's see what were they screening Uh, eliza's day starring ronald cheng And uh, also the very excellent Anhui Hoy documentary, uh, Keep Rolling, uh, both of which had uh, Q&A sessions facilitated by our very own uh, Mr. Kevin Ma, CNN's Kevin Ma, to be precise. (laughs) Um, So it was really nice. I mean, uh, not having been out to the cinema and having absolutely no chance to see uh, contemporary Hong Kong cinema for a while, it was really nice to have that opportunity. Um, And I know that some people may be out there listening and, and, you know, be a bit begrudging because, as I understand it, (laughs) like other film festivals, like the very film festival that you're going to right now, sir, um, they did have lockdown restrictions on that for, you know, region and whatnot. So it was nice to have something that uh, I could get access to. And even if it was only for two films, um, I was very, very pleased. And uh, Kevin did a very excellent job in uh, the moderation. So uh, if you get a chance, I do highly recommend uh, seeing both of those films. They were very, very good. Uh, beyond that, of course, um, there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since the last time we recorded. I think we talked about um, Coming to America, the the, the sequel, and uh, we've had a new, old Justice League movie released. We've, of course, got the movie we're going to be talking about today. Um, a bunch of stuff all over the place, but one of the things that I've been idling away my time with is, uh, Louis Koo's old, uh, 2001 TVB drama called A Step Into the Past, <laughs> which is <laughs> 40 episodes of, uh, Louis Koo time traveling to, uh, before the first emperor, uh, rises to power and, uh, kind of mucking around in the past, uh, back to the future style, basically, um for reasons. Uh but uh, the reason I'm kind of doing this to myself and I'm somebody who I can I can get enjoyment from TVB drama though I prefer some of the more contemporary stuff because some of the old stuff like this one from 2001 can tend to look pretty dated. You know, it's not um it's not widescreen, it's not HD and some of the effects are kind of on that fringe of video cheese that we all remember. But um you know, this is actually being created as source material or or i should say it's being used as source material for a lewis Ku movie that's out there um that's hopefully going to get released in the not too distant future called back to the past in which um he is playing the same character uh like a decade later and then i guess he goes goes back so i'm very excited to see that movie and to kind of see how it connects with this series and i'm I'm about a few episodes away from the end, so <laughs> I'm about to draw it to a close. And uh, I know the movie's probably still quite a ways off. I've had some offline discussions with Kevin about where it is in sort of the production process. But uh, hopefully we'll get to see it sooner rather than later. He does have uh, another big epic called Dynasty Warriors, uh, which is coming out in a few months, and it's supposed to get a, get a release on Netflix over here in the States. So we have that to... You know, give us our Lewis Koo fix for the interim. Although what I, I've seen I of that movie to, does not look great.
0: So. I swear, I think like Lewis Koo has somehow invented um, that that Tesla clone device from the Prestige, and and cloned himself so that he could be in ten movies a year. I swear, yeah, to I it, do it's not either know where either that or
1: like guy. some really good uh, Imagineers from Disney have created animatronic Lewis's to go out and, and do stuff. I mean, I, I used to joke about, you know, one of the reasons I loved Wong Jing was because he keeps the Hong Kong movie industry going like like his films are not, you know, just based on the sheer output. I got to say, Lewis has been doing, you know, just gangbusters with all the productions. And, and, I mean, even stuff I'm watching and I'm seeing, like, he's basically got his own version of Skywalker sound, right it's like a uh, one cool sound studio that i see listed on films and stuff that's being done so it's like he's really really keeping the industry alive um which i think is 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 fantastic i mean as
0: somebody who loves hong kong cinema yeah yeah one cool um is pretty much a post production facility um which is actually housed in the milky way building so um milky way's office is i think on the top floor or the 7th floor whatever and um Milky Way, I think, takes up uh, two or three of the floors because I've been there because I've done uh, working on uh, Milky Way films. They actually do post-production right downstairs with One Cool. And and you sit there and you go in and they have a, a big screening room. They have, they have screening rooms and they have like a theater size uh, screening room, which is about 50 seats and like a proper theater. Um, and of course, technicians. And then uh, upstairs is their artist management and distribution stuff. So, yeah, it, it's a pretty big um uh what you call it a pretty big production i guess a pretty big uh, outfit and they pretty much do much of hong kong cinema's post-production work these days uh in some form or another so uh yeah um it's a pretty big deal those guys
1: well we are not here to opine about our love for the tanned one Um, We'll get to talk about him in future episodes, I'm sure. Uh, But we're going to talk about a film after we get through our news. So let me throw the talking stick back over to Kevin with this week's news.
0: Here at the news desk, um, I hate to lead it off with with sad news. But yes, uh, eventually, I mean, the thing is Hong Kong cinema has been hit with some losses lately. Uh, First, we had the death of Montag uh, about a month ago and then last week we learned about uh, the death of Liu Kai-Chi, who passed away uh, from stomach cancer at the age of 67. Um, And and he was diagnosed rather late in the stage, I think, uh, or or quite late stage, and then he left us pretty quickly. Um, So... You know, I don't know what else to say. We've lost two Hong Kong cinema giants. Even though they're not really big leading actors, they they do get even actually more work than the leading actors um, because they play supporting roles and they get to jump from one project to another very quickly. So that makes them very prolific actors uh, for anyone who's seen Hong Kong cinema. Um, Of course, Uma Dat is best known um, as essentially stephen chow's comic sidekick in his in his hit films even though he himself um is a very respectable and excellent actor as well in fact his one and only hong kong uh, film award win wasn't from a stephen chow film it was for a moment of romance so uh that's sad uh, and, but even though montai sort of slowed down in in output in recent years uh both health issues and just you know less work being available, and perhaps he like spend more time with his family. Kind of not really half retirement mode, but he has been less prolific in in, in the last couple of years. Of course, everyone still loves him because of his work for with uh, Stephen Chow and just because he's a he's a great um, comic actor. Um, kai Chi hurts even more, I think, just because kai Chi is is a staple in Hong Kong cinema. He is he started out as a TVB actor and then a stage actor, and then he branched out to films even more when he left TVB, I think in the early 2000s. And, you know, like I always say, anyone who's watched a Hong Kong film, I think, in the last 20 years is very likely to have seen Liu Kai-chi. He is an actor who who never gives a lazy performance. He, he we, we kind of even have uh turn him into a sort of adjective for actors who really put a lot of energy into the performance or actors who let's say in some way overact um just because Chi is such a passionate actor for his craft and he really puts his all into his performances um and in fact he's so prolific that um at the time of his death last week he still has at least five films that have yet to be released so that really tells you how hard-working Kai chi is as an actor, and um yeah both both of them uh, I'll miss greatly
1: yeah, I mean uh on Luke kai Chi, just to kind of fall back to what we were just talking about with Louis Koo, he's actually in the t v b drama uh a step into the past small supporting role, so just like you know one or two of the episodes in in the beginning, but a significant one, and i'm I'm wondering if he's actually in back to the past because of that role. Um, I, I guess. I haven't seen a full cast list for that, but it'll be interesting to see if he shows up there. And um, with Tat too, I mean, here, again, somebody who's very, very recognizable um, for, I think, for a lot of Hong Kong cinema fans in the West because of his pairing with Stephen Zhao, as you mentioned. But somebody who shows up, you know, in unexpected places, too. I was uh, a couple of weeks back watching... Uh, 2015 film out of Singapore starring Mark Lee. I was on a bit a little bit of a Mark Lee kick and going through some of his older filmography. And, and Montat was, you know, starring co-starring alongside him in a 2015 film called Time is Money. So, you know, he was working, you know, across in, in different industries from time to time as well, too. So uh, he's definitely somebody who I think left a very strong impression on film fans across the world.
0: Yeah, because of his work with... Um... Stephen chow and those are hugely popular with the, the uh, ethnic chinese population in southeast asia imanda was able to get a lot of work in malaysia singapore in fact i think last year or two years ago he did um an ad for netflix in southeast asia in cantonese yeah um th- those are those are pretty funny and he, he, re- um, so... he
1: redid his role um fairly recently for oolong courtyard kung fu school
0: right um which is a
1: kind of a modern update or modern sequel of
0: the Shaolin Poppy films. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he left behind lots of iconic characters, even beyond the Stephen Chow stuff. I know, yeah. I know everyone recognizes him for the Stephen Chow stuff, but I always said he's just like Liu He's an actor who doesn't, you know, he, he's kind of had that, had that brand of acting where he really is passionate about the characters, whether, you know, it's detriment to the film, even it possibly is detriment to the film. Um, you know he's uh he never gives a lazy performance I'll, I'll give him that
1: all right uh let's move on beyond our sad news for this week and talk about some happier news with regard to the film festival although maybe not so happy for you mr ma right because i saw your facebook <laughs> post on this a little bit earlier but uh jet tone um who had a screening of uh happy together for as part of the festival as you were talking about earlier Um, which the tickets sold out really, really quickly. And I understand it's because of limited seating, but I know that in the past, I mean, in the long past, they've always had issues with ticketing with the film festival. Have things gotten any better? I mean, are there scalpers out there (laughs) who are trying to take advantage (laughs) of the system still? I mean, is there no better solution?
0: Oh man. Do I have to okay. I'll give like a too long, didn't read version. Okay. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. Okay so first of all this year was weird because um all the seatings had to be uh there is no free seating in the past free seating makes things quite quickly in terms of checking out because you just grab a ticket you check out and then done right um and this i mean the first couple of years i was buying tickets for the festival back in the late 2000s when i just moved back into hong kong is that you had to put in a bunch of code um the film codes uh, you know, in one in one go, and then you just grab the tickets and then you go. But even those always took a long time because then sometimes say you put in thirty codes and then somehow one of the films gets sold out. You put them all in again. um So those were the sort of painful early days of the film festival for me as a as a film goer. And then things got better. They did the cart thing, so you just pick them one by one and then just pick, pay, go, and then just leave. And also they in, they install like a twenty minute limit for each person who logs in, so it helps free up space. Blah 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 blah. Okay, it got better the last. Couple and of
1: the, years. didn't they have at some point a uh, like a, a, a
0: on all watch everything band that you could buy? Um, yeah, but no one ever buys those because those things you don't get priority. You can't just get into queue because usually for free seating you get in a queue thirty minutes before the film and then you go and pick your seats right. But right. if you have one of those big expensive pass, you're sort of. Uh, Uh, standing on the side and they don't guarantee you a ticket right because you don't get the ticket for that particular screening so if you show up and it's sold out and they don't have any seats open then you're done you you have to go home Uh, but anyway this year is different because one you have the seating capacity limit two you have to pick seats you can't do free seating anymore so it takes more time for you to just pick that one seat three um because there's a one venue that is not within that usual ticketing system which is the k-11 art house that's the theater that that was the ua cinema and then they closed down and then uh, mcl took over but the thing is mcl did not allow their ticketing system to merge with the one that the, the festival uses so to buy those tickets you have to go to the cinemas website okay and then you have to check you have to you have to buy one each ticket one by one which means you can't you can't buy them in one batch. You have to buy it, pay for it, check out, and then do the next one all over again. So the ticketing process itself took me two hours, almost two hours, like an hour and 45 minutes, because um, the first time I did it on the government uh, ticketing system, which is the one the festival uses, I it took me a while because uh, the free seating section, I mean, the, the selected seating, I had to pick seats for each shows. And then by the time I checked out, my time limit had gone I passed my time limit and I lost all my tickets and I had to do it over again. And then after I was done with that, I had to go to the MCL website and then buy each film one by one. So yeah. So my credit card statement suddenly, you know, it has the, you know, for one, the one batch of um, uh, ticket transaction. And then it had like 15 MCL ticketing transaction. And I'm very thankful to my credit card firm that they didn't lock my credit card sometime, some somehow halfway through the process. So that's that's the painful thing about ticketing this year yeah but back to the back to the main topic yes the one films were sold out very quickly even though they were playing the cultural center because one you had the 50 percent limited capacity uh the film festival held up some of the tickets even though i i understand that it wasn't a lot and three there was a genuine um mm-hmm. demand to see these films on the big screen again so you, the four films were in the mood for love Uh, Fallen Angels, Happy Together and 2046. 2046 uh, as you may expect sold out not as quickly (laughs) as as one can uh, understand. But Fallen Angels, Happy Together and uh, In the Mood for Love was sold out in like minutes. Like I tried to get a ticket to Happy Together and I'm me. You you know me. I'm like at the system at 10am and I went straight for Happy Together and it was like gone. Um, So so that's the painful thing. Anyway, the news that we're trying to talk about—sorry, after <laughs> after our little rant, of that, yeah, yeah—after a little rant, is that at the end uh, or at the beginning of the Happy Together screening, there was a surprise revelation that um, there would be a thirty-minute um, documentary that the the, the company uh, Jet Tone produced for its thirtieth anniversary that will be shown after the Happy Together screening. Uh, because, as you know, Jetong is in his 30th year. This year is his 30th anniversary, which is why Wong Kar went back and did the, the World Wong Kar Wai box sets. He went and remastered, uh, I think, seven or eight of his films. And we will talk about that set because we, I think we did talk about it last time already. I have my hands on the set now, and I will rant in my head for the longest time about those remasters. But that's not the point. The point is, after. So in The Mood for Love, there wasn't that. Surprise. It was only at the Happy Together screen that was a surprise, and turned out it was this 30 minute documentary called, um, what is it, 100th Millimeter Apart or something? Anyway, you can find out on my Twitter. It's a 30 minute um, sort of behind the scenes montage that shows um, the first day footage of of Walker Wise films. So essentially, footage from the first day of shooting and some additional. Deleted scenes from had together and it's somehow all linked together in this thirty minute montage with a bit of um, voiceover and it's sort of a celebration and um, and of course we all knew that Jet would have like a whole warehouse of this archive footage and from what I understand is that a lot of these behind the scenes stuff was also remastered along with the films in order to produce this documentary so. Uh, here's another rant. Part is that why wasn't this included on the Criterion box set? <laughs> like I get it. Like okay, cool. Like maybe Jetong decided afterwards. Maybe they wanted to keep it a surprise for the Hon- and and show it to the Hong Kong audience first before anyone else. But then then they produced a trailer, and a trailer usually means it's for sale, and for sale usually means we're gonna have to pay up money for this, don't we? So, so that that's. That's okay. I mean, I understand that Wong Kar-wai needs income, right? Uh, aside from the fancy perfume commercials that he directs, he, his company needs income, so that's fine. But it just annoys me slightly a little bit that they decided to use this to make some more money and somehow release it in a way that it's going to charge a consumer some more money in addition to the 100, uh, $130, $150, $170 um we all paid for the box set already so
1: yeah Yeah, i i mean i guess uh for fans who are not at the festival we'll get a chance to see it at uh some point in the future with maybe a you know the criterion
0: set 2.0 or something (laughs) yeah i'm told it was only at the happy together screening so even if you had somehow clawed your way into a fallen angels ticket a 2046 ticket or in the mood for love ticket you wouldn't get the documentary it was only at that happy together screening it's more rare than a covid vaccine
1: (laughs) all right well uh final bit of news this week just a little bit of uh kind of release updates uh we've talked about the uh, massive hit that has been the demon slayer kimetsu no yaiba mugen train movie uh that just steamrolled out of Japan and it's actually now getting play internationally this month uh, here in the month of April and uh, I I think it's starting in a week or so here in the States and it may be playing already if you are elsewhere internationally Um, so availability is there if you're willing to go out and brave uh, the cinemas which I'm not but for those of the rest of us who are waiting for home video um it is getting a physical media release on june 16th out of japan which surprisingly is going to include uh, english subtitles so somebody in the, among the powers of B figured out that this is a you know a potential money maker for international fans and decided to uh put english subtitles i mean for those who follow japanese physical media you know subtitles of any kind are typically an extreme rarity so um you know this will be available June sixteenth. It's it's pretty pricey. It's like in the forty dollar range, um, I think. And it's not a. I don't even think it's like a collector's edition or anything like that. So, uh, but you will have that option. And I've read also that it is going to be coming to digital platforms for purchase, um, w- like around June twenty second, I believe, if I have that date correct. So, um, still a couple of months off, but not too far in the distant future for those of you who are like me who are anxious. To see this film
0: yeah I should tell you that I mean I did I didn't see the film in, in theories in Hong Kong because I still have to watch a series first so somehow I missed the biggest Japanese film of all time but um, I've been told that even the Hong Kong theatrical release did not have English subtitles hmm. so even if you were living in Hong Kong if you're still living in Hong Kong Paul you wouldn't have been able to see it in the cinema because it was not English subtitled. Did um, they
1: did they have a dub of it or was it just the Japanese with the Chinese subtitles
0: I don't remember if there was a dub, but um, I know a friend who went to watch a Japanese version who said, yeah, it, it did not have English subtitles. Ben, that could be because the distributor who bought it, Muse, covered both the Taiwan and the Hong Kong rights. And uh, Taiwan usually doesn't show anime with English, uh, English subtitles at all. Right. So I'm guessing that under that deal, they... They covered it that way, uh, but but it, it is, um, you're right, it, it's very rare for Japanese physical anime release to get English subtitles with the exception of, for some reason, the um, the two um, films by Shin, Shinkai Makoto, the um, Weathering Review, and and what was the other one? Your name, both had English subtitles on physical release. In fact, actually, all of Shinkai Makoto's Japanese physical release in Japan have English subtitles for some reason. Um, I'm guessing that's something maybe he insists, insists on or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it, it is. But, you know, maybe that could be... I thought that was only, like, a, in his case. But for some reason, this big franchise animated movie has English subtitles. So I'm, I'm kind of shocked, to be yeah. honest.
1: I mean, interesting. I mean, normally... I would have expected it to fall like you know some of the other big titles out there uh, that I've picked up like the My Hero Acad- Academia series. They typically get released under a Funimation distributor distribution release um so that they will, you know, of course they're going to have English subtitles, but the digital versions um under Funimation they break them up so that you have to either purchase the Japanese with uh, English subtitles, or the dubbed version. You don't you, you don't get both if you do a digital purchase. Um, they separate them out. So oftentimes it's more cost effective to go with the physical media because if you want both, then you've got both, um, and you're not paying double the price. So, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this plays out uh, with international fans if they want to go for that Japanese physical media version or if they wanted to go for the digital version, uh, about a week later. Green, green. And welcome back. So our review this week, Godzilla vs. Kong. This is coming from director Adam Wingard, um, who we'll talk about in a little bit. The story, in some, I mean, if you've followed along this far, or if you're just kind of jumping in and you haven't seen the other films, it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, But in an effort to open a doorway to hollow Earth, an Earth that exists down in the core of our planet, uh, scientists decide to move Kong from his enclosure on Skull Island to Antarctica. This draws the attention of the alpha of the kaiju world, that is Godzilla, who sets off to challenge the giant ape. Fights ensue, and a bunch of people act dumb. So, uh, Kevin, I'm going to let you go first, um, as I... Mull over my
0: thoughts (laughs) what is kevin versus paul (laughs) um yeah okay so the thing is i don't really care for kaiju movies like i feel like i know i the first thing people are going to be like why are you talking about kaiju movie you don't care for kaiju movies well because Paul is a big sci-fi fan, and I'm also a fan of big blockbusters, so I watch all of them. And I try to watch all of them, and therefore I, I will talk about it. But I am, okay, I, the qualifier is that I am actually a huge fan of Shin Godzilla, the Japanese reboot. Um, but the thing is, I don't think that the Legendary MonsterVerse has done any of this stuff right. Okay, so... The biggest problem with these kaiju films, the American one, is that I can't really be bothered to care about the humans. So Godzilla, I did not care. Um, Godzilla 2, I cared even less. Um, Skull Island was okay for me because it was like a jungle adventure that happens to have Kong in it. And I'm cool with that. Like, I feel like you put more immediate stakes in front of me. I can get with it. But... The thing about like like the second godzilla movie is that it becomes one of those like conspiracy theory movies and then you have monarch this this organization that tries to be like shield in the mcu and just none of it really works for me so i i watch all the monsterverse movies but i never really cared about it um i think the problem is somewhat soft here a little bit but not really here the humans are largely reacting to the Godzilla problem or the Godzilla-Kong problem, and the movement of the monsters sort of drives them in a way. Um, Whereas in Godzilla 2, you've got this, again, this plot twist with the conspiracy, and you've got these uh, villains trying to control the monsters. It's very human-centric, let's say, you know. And I really never really cared for it. So um, here... The, the monsters really do the story even though of course they're not really let's say uh, in terms of storytelling they have more agency in what they were doing here even though the idea is that you put Godzilla and Kong in the same world they'll naturally just start fighting I mean the idea is really silly it's almost like they have telepathic ability or something I, I don't understand it Okay, I guess you can tell me give me a bunch of biology and tell me animals and whatever but it's just few silly here okay but what they did fix in Godzilla vs Kong is that the monsters are here fighting in daytime. Because the big problem with Godzilla and Godzilla 2 as well is that I don't know what it was. Maybe it was for for you know budgetary reasons, or is to make it look cooler, or I don't know. But they always fought at night, so it, it sort of gives off this effect of essentially if you if you let's say you're watching a movie in a theater, okay. And then someone is standing in front of you the entire time, and you can't really see what's happening. That is, to me, Godzilla 1 and 2. It's like, I can't even see the fights of the monsters, but I'm here to watch the fights of the monsters. And you can't let me watch the fights of the monsters because you're too cheap to put them in daylight. Um, Here, uh, the problem is fixed. I think both of the major monster fights are set in the daytime um, or in very well-lit areas. So you can actually see what's happening in many ways so if you came for the monster fights i think you do get what you pay for especially if you watch it on a big screen because i watched it in the the theater um and it was very loud it was very bassy and it was a experience that i would never get at home so i am appreciative of that however this whole story about hollow earth and the the villain with the you know the evil billionaire whatever who has his own sort of plans for what i don't know i don't understand i don't i still don't get the idea what this the villain was trying to go for or why he was doing it for this complete waste of time for me it's silly it's a complete waste of time i do not care about what they're doing whether they succeed or not because at the end of the day you don't beat the giant 10 story monsters they're fighting in front of you in the city nothing you're going to do is going to control them, or nothing you do is going to affect what they do because they're going to fight and they're going to destroy buildings. So, who am I to care what what these evil billionaires are doing or whatever they're building doing to try and control them? I just really do not, it, it it put to me it affects the plot in no way. Okay, so that's why I it still doesn't work for me. Um, and even if we're supposed to care about humans, the characters are so thin that there's really no reason to care about their well-being. Like here, they they try to make you really care about them by adding in that little girl. Um, so the character that oversees King Kong is um, played by Rebecca Hall, and then she has a, a sort of adopted daughter who lives on Skull Island, and she has a bond with King Kong for some reason. Somehow, King Kong is nice to, is is, is sort of mean to every single human except this little girl on the on the island. Um, and I, it, it felt like such a commercial decision to put in a little girl just to make audiences care more about the humans that it sort of has an opposite effect on me, that I care about it even less because I know that, you know, nothing's going to happen to the girl because she's a little girl in a, in a PG-13 big blockbuster. It really takes away any sort of suspense, okay? Um, but the thing is, I like Shin Godzilla because like zombie movies, monster movies aren't really about the monsters if you get what i mean for example godzilla is about the consequence of nuclear testing right a rampant nuclear testing or shin godzilla actually is about the bosch disaster response uh, after 311 after the the big major northeast earthquake and tsunami in japan it's about the botch is as much about godzilla as it is about government bureaucracy in the in getting into the way of a effective disaster response. And of course also about US Japan relations. Yes, it sounds like a whole lot to handle, but I think a good kaiju movie, if you want us to care about the humans, I think you have to have some sort of real world allegory or put it in real world sticks that I think that people can relate to or can have deep deeper reading of what's going on beyond the monster. And none of the MonsterVerse movies have really done that for me. With that said, there's a character played by um, Brian... Brian, I have to find his name again. Uh, Oh, here it is. Uh, Brian Terry Henry. He plays a sort of conspiracy theory podcaster who... Um, who goes undercover and then tries to find out the stuff about the monsters and passes a lot of them on his podcast. And I found his character the most relatable because that is the most likely thing to happen in a world where monsters exist. They were going to get a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists and people who want to do undercover who want to like have the insider scoop Who who you know, it's like, like that character in um, Contagion, a Jude Law character who tries to take advantage of a situation by peddling a fake drug. And that kind of stuff is more likely to happen in a world plagued by monsters than, say, a bunch of people in a in a lab looking at monitors tracking monsters. I really don't care about those two. but I cared about that the, the conspiracy theory guy because it, he is the most down to earth monsterverse character I've seen throughout these four movies, and and I and I find I was very amused. And it's not that I particularly cared about what happens to him in the story. It's just that I find his character the most relatable because that is going to be you know that person that would exist in this world so does any of this stuff really make me care more about the MonsterVerse as a host no like i i'm not particularly excited about more monsterverse movies like i appreciate watching them on the big screen i appreciate the special effects i appreciate the craft but do, am I particularly excited about watching? Let's say I don't know what what other monsters do we have left. Paul, I have to, I have to turn to you for this beyond monster, uh, uh, King Kong and 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 Godzilla.
1: Um, well, they've already done Rodan and King Ghidra and uh, the surprise one who kind of shows up at the end here and Mothra. Um, so they they've kind of really tapped out the big ones. I think maybe Angiris. <laughs> is one that c- traditional kaiju fans would like to see
0: um and i mean are they are you going to start to like crossing over and buy rights to like ultraman and <laughs> that's an ultraman fight king kong oh that's an ultraman fight because we you know there is a live action Ultraman movie coming up later this yeah, year shin, shin ultraman to be sure
1: yep <laughs> so let's see see what kind
0: of meetings are in that one yeah, so I, I don't really want to see more of the Mondiverse, MonsterVerse. I will, but then I don't really care about it. So instead, just pre spring on Shin Godzilla 2. I'd really rather see Shin Godzilla 2.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to know where to begin with this, but I, let, me, let me start <laughs> further down in my notes with the director, Adam Wingard. When I heard this casting choice for director, um, I was really kind of shocked and surprised because this is the same director who brought us the netflix death note that was just a terrible adaptation of a a really great story out of out of japan and just i mean i think most fans of the japanese death note be it the anime or even the films which really don't aren't all that great to capture the some of the nuance in the anime and the manga, it's still that are far super, superior to what um, the the director gave us uh, in the Netflix version. And so I was really surprised that he was given this, the Super Bowl, as I like to call it, uh, of the kaiju films here. I mean, this is, you know, Godzilla Endgame, right? <laughs> that or, or, or it was supposed to be. Um, except it wasn't. I mean, they dropped most of the plot f- threads of the prior films. I mean, you you have this this idea that, okay, Kaiju have suddenly emerged and the secret group Monarch kind of knows about him and has known about him for a few decades. But, you know, they're really the ones who who know anything. And then suddenly by the second Godzilla film, a bunch of them have emerged, okay? And you're talking about entire cities across the world being destroyed with these emergencies, right? And now here we are just a couple years later because Millie Bobby Brown is still in high school, <laughs> okay? And suddenly you have this technological leap forward. I mean, we, at the time of this recording, we're just getting off the news of a massive container ship blocking up weeks of logistics because it got stuck in the suez canal okay one ship imagine if actual kaijus erupted and destroyed cities all across the planet right Uh, so so this is the kind of universe and and the kind of narrative they had set up and by the end of the second film they were talking about okay you know godzilla's here to keep them in check but we're going to have to learn to live in a kind of relationship with these kaiju now that they're here among us where did all that go they just you know they they just kind of threw all of that out and they said okay here's a new big bad company that you've never heard of called apex and they suddenly have all this science fantasy tech that never existed in any of the other movies right and we're gonna jump down to hollow earth with our floating shuttles and you know we've got boom tubes that can take us from the u.s to hong kong in a matter of you know just a couple hours i mean it's just all this crazy crazy science fantasy that didn't exist in an effort to get these two big famous beasts to 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 go whale on each other and i mean i can appreciate i can appreciate a big smackdown battle i mean we've we've had a couple of them in this series so far and this was supposed to be the big one right but just all the stupidity to get us there was it really necessary and and to just, you know, basically cut off from everything that would had been previously established. I mean, we get a couple carryover actors in the form of Millie Bobby Brown and uh Kyle Chandler, who are nothing like who they were in in the previous movie for some reason. It's like they're almost completely different characters somehow. And okay, fine, different director, different direction, but I mean Millie Bobby Brown's character gets a Scooby gang together. They're going to investigate Apex. I mean, all of the stuff that they're doing really amounts to nothing because it all boils down to a single moment when a character dumps a soda on a computer terminal. That's all they do. <laughs> That's the end point of that whole arc, and it was completely unnecessary. They could have cut the whole thing out, and it wouldn't have mattered um, in in the in the grand scheme of things. They could have gotten to that that necessary moment some other way and in a much cleverer way, I thought. Um, I was just, I was so disappointed with the level of stupidity because again, we're, and it's its our fault as the audience because we're expecting everybody to be at the level that Marvel has set for a standard. So when we see the things that they've done with the DC universe and it doesn't meet that standard, we're like, oh no, this is terrible. We see this here in the MonsterVerse, like, oh no, this is terrible. Is it big? Is it spectacle? Is it popcorn? Yeah, but it's just so dumb. I didn't care. The only character I cared about out of everybody we met, most of whom were new, um, you know, one of the most interesting characters from both of the Godzilla films um, was the Admiral, played by uh, actor David Straith, Strathern. if I'm saying his last name correctly. You know, he's a great actor, been in a lot of good stuff, in Nomad Land. I mean, where is he? He was like the leading Admiral in the last film he didn't die i mean he should be leading the charge here right no nope. they're not going to bring him back okay you know it's just it just feels like they really wanted to just do their own thing they didn't want to follow anything that had been established um kevin talked a little bit about skull island which i think is probably of the entire series is probably the best film in terms of the most fun Um, the most well-lit, because most of Kong Skull Island happens in daytime. And it was good that some of what's going on here happens in in the daytime, as opposed to the first Godzilla film and um, the second, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And really, Godzilla, the King of the Monsters was just so very dark. It It was surprising. I kind of get what the first one, what Gareth Edwards was doing, because he was applying his monsters formula... To a Godzilla film which I don't think fans reacted well to because we don't want to see the monsters formula I mean a lot of of what you see in the first Godzilla film is build ups to fights and then it cuts to the aftermath and he used that very well in his movie in his indie movie Monsters but you don't want to do that in a Godzilla movie because you're there to see Godzilla and you're there to see Godzilla fight Um, but at least he the things he was talking about, you know, the the sort of human toll that was being alluded to was there. And that kind of carried over into Godzilla King of the Monsters, too, with the, you know, with Kyle Chandler's, um, you know, family. That, that idea that there's, you know, these big creatures smashing down on buildings have an impact. So by the end, when we see Godzilla and Kong going at it and we go, oh, yeah, look, cool, it's Hong Kong but there's no fallout from any of that. It's just so much big spec meaningless spectacle. It's like empty spectacle. Um, and I thought we'd gotten to a place where we were kind of, uh, you know, maybe beyond that. And, you know, I love seeing Hong Kong, but how many times are we going to have to destroy Hong Kong? Right. We've done it in battleship transformers, Pacific rim. They've done it in a, you know, one of the older generation Godzilla movies. I think Godzilla vs. destroyer. Um, there are a lot of other interesting cities in Asia that you can use, right? I don't think you can use Tokyo because I think, I think that's a rights thing, right? With the actual Japanese Toho produced films, but I'm sure that, you know, you could do a Singapore or, you know, uh, someplace in, in Indonesia would be happy to, you know, have some money thrown their way. I I get it. We all love Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong, but I mean, come on, another city would be good, right? Um, so, yeah, I did, just so much unnecessariness. I thought at a certain point they were going to have the two kids, Millie Bobby Brown and actress um, Kaylee Huddle, if I'm saying her name correctly, who plays uh, um, one of the Iwi. She plays the soul again, another plot thread they just decided to abandon. If you saw Kong Skull Island, there's a native tribe living there. Um, called the iwi if i'm saying if i'm saying them correctly and they just kind of wrote them off they said oh storm came in the storm came in onto the island to kill everybody except this one girl who's mute and can sign with kong <laughs> it's like <laughs> you just you know you're just completely eroding all of uh what came before remember those threads that we had because of chinese co-productions right characters like uh Jin Tian, and then uh later Zhang Ziyi. you know you don't see any of those people again they don't bring any of them back, even though they're quote-unquote kaiju experts, you know. It's just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> This film has nothing to do with the other films, really, except they decided to take Hollow Earth and double down or triple down on it. And even that is just, I mean, it's they end up going through these weird portals where it's almost like you might as well have just crossed it over with Pacific Rim. It would have been more interesting as as, you know, with with the establishment of what they've already done there. I mean, uh, you know, I think at one point uh, Godzilla blasts, uh, you know, his atomic breath down into the ground all the way down to hollow earth, which I'm guessing is at the core, and they made it seem like it's at the core. And then a few seconds later, Kong climbs up. I mean, (laughs) from the core (laughs) up to Hong Kong, he climbs up, okay, in a few seconds. no. It doesn't work this way, people. Come on. We're not that dumb. Yes, we want to see them fight, but we want at least be smart about it. Come on. I mean, uh, it's just frustrating, frustrating to see a film that you were really kind of looking forward to um, handled in this manner. Now, that being said, I mean, the visuals are outstanding by the end. I mean, if you really wanted to see these two lay the smack down in each other, it delivers the goods. And it does so, I mean, even though the final sequence is at night, it's not dark night like when Godzilla was fighting King Ghidorah or when Godzilla was fighting the MUTOs in the first film um it's got better lighting it looks great in HD um but you know I mean they they do carry one thread over but if you look at the film list you know Charles Dance isn't here I mean they couldn't even bring him back I mean and he was (laughs) the he was the end credit (laughs) <laughs> it was the post credit scene of uh got, you know the second godzilla film so it, you know it just shows me that they weren't really that serious about the monster verseness of this whole thing they were really just trying to make a big popcorn film and and make the playground uniquely their own and and you know doing what they did so will you have fun with it yeah i think you'll have fun with the you know last 30 minutes or so of this film um, there's a lot of stuff going on before they, the two actually get into their first fight. And it's just really just, I, I found it boring though. The one character I cared about, um, in, in the whole thing, I would say is was probably, uh, a brief cameo by, by comedian Ronnie Chang, who's a <laughs> shopkeeper. And I was like, I want to see more of that guy, <laughs> you know, cause he looks like he's got real problems <laughs> dealing with punk kids coming into a shop. Um, so show me more of that guy. Uh, yeah, it's, it is it's it is what it is, and it's out there, and you're probably going to see it if you've listened to this podcast. And if you haven't, you know, go watch it and, and judge for yourself. But if you're a Kaiju fan, if you're somebody who's really invested in their building of the MonsterVerse, I think, like me, you're going to be disappointed that they just didn't stick the landing. They, did, they decided to not follow through with what they had originally, the path that they had originally started down. Um, so that, I think, is my biggest disappointment.
0: I mean I know there are two reasons why Adam Wingard got picked to direct this movie. One, he's white. And two, a good agent. I mean that's that's pretty much it. Usually these these directors probably can talk a good game. They probably got great pitches that the studio's impressed with and then it and then of course the directors for some reason they a lot of these white male directors get a chance when they only directed maybe one indie film or two indie films and suddenly they are given hundreds of millions of dollars to put these things together it's a very weird way of um decision making in terms of the studio so um but that this is what smells like to this whole instead this in fact this whole monster verse that's what it smells like to me is is these sort of young young white directors who jump off from indie films and suddenly give a hundred million dollars to make these films except i think in the case of the skull island director who who's who's like a real geek and like a real nerd and and i think uh i don't remember how he jumped off to that skull island movie but it seems like that's how a lot of these monster universe and these franchises are going to to pick their directors
1: yeah i mean i i i I guess of all of them, I really got the casting of Gareth Edwards because I really liked what he did with monsters. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the background of that film because he didn't have the budget to actually show, you know, uh, giant monsters. And he applies that nicely to, I think, uh, Godzilla. Um, But, again, people want to see (laughs) when you've got the when you've got the name of the monster and everybody knows what he looks like it's not a secret reveal like jaws or something for the first time you want to see more of of the monster but even with his drama and in that the the family drama which at the time i didn't think worked well it still works way better than anything going on in this film Um, so i think that he had a stronger better sensibility of trying to adapt the source material um. Then, uh, Adam Wingard did. Uh, I, I. Again, I'm. I'm head scratching after Death Note. Is like, really? <laughs> You're gonna give the big end game to him? Okay.
0: Um, because because at the end of the day, even even uh, Shin Godzilla, the thing is, they get what the Godzilla genre is. The Godzilla genre or the monster, the kaiju genre, is a disaster movie. It's disaster. Well, so that's true. That's true. If
1: you go to the the early generation, but when you get into when you get into the second generation, you know, uh, th- then you've got the camp in there, right? You've got the the Godzilla doing wrestling moves on the other monsters, you know, and flying on the back of his tail, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's more of the sensibility that the Western audiences picked up on, and 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 really go for. But I agree with you. I think that the need for there to be a smarter sense of what this represents one of the things I really hated about the the second um, Godzilla movie was they started talking this nonsense about I mean you have you know, they're detonating nuclear bombs you know in very close vicinity and people like hanging out of airplanes and looking back at the nuclear explosions and dropping oxygen destroyers and stuff and you know standing right next to Godzilla as he fights King Ghidorah, and nobody's getting sick Right? And they come up with this this science fantasy that suddenly says, oh, no, the monsters actually absorb the radiation and they're healing the planet. Right, That was one of the themes they kind of left off with. And I'm like, really? So even if they're absorbing radiation and people are standing next to them, the radiation's not passing through those people and killing them. I mean, yeah, it's it, they, they've really kind of pushed that commentary that it really came from. Um, To the side to get to these big rumbles and and it it comes across as very as very dumb if i'm being blunt about it at at times Um, But sometimes I can overlook the dumb and sometimes I can't I couldn't do it here and you know me we talked about shin godzilla I was not a fan of shin godzilla, but I would (laughs) much rather watch shin godzilla because it's at least smart Right Um, I don't think it's a good representation of the character of godzilla for me, but it's a smart movie whereas this is just not a smart movie. <laughs> I'm just sorry it's not. And I hate saying I, that cuz I love Godzilla.
0: The the most amusing moment of this film is when I found out that Hollow Earth has wireless charging.
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's 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 it for our takedown of the big titan takedown. Um if you have thoughts on it, please, you know, do drop us a line over on Facebook or an email or over on the website and let us know what you thought of Godzilla versus Kong. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Gibor, Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. But we also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be a part of the show, you know, let us know what you thought of this big kaiju royal rumble. Um, please do drop us a line at our website at concast.com or over on Twitter at Concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us at Facebook at East S, West S. As always, uh, please do follow along with Kevin, um, especially these days as he's going through the Hong Kong International Film Festival, so I'm sure he'll have quite a few interesting updates. So, sir, where can they find out more about you?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. You can email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com, But please don't ask me to be on your podcast. <laughs> that's a that's a Godzilla Kong joke. Don't worry, don't worry. I'm not. I'm I'm not. I'm only kidding. You can ask me to be on your podcast, but don't make it be the first line of your introduction. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: only conspiracy theory <laughs> podcast, though. Only conspiracy
0: <laughs> theory podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, and please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network. Um, So, yeah, we'll have something to talk about on our next show. I'm not sure what it's going to be. There's some stuff coming down in the pipe that I'm uh, excited about, though. Um, So we'll try to line up something. And Kevin's going to be busy for a little bit as he's, again, got a pretty full schedule. Um, But we'll be back to talk about something for sure. So until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying, take your shot. Vaccines are coming, so get one. And we'll see you next time.